And don't get me wrong, my service in the British Army, some of the best years in my life, some of the hardest, but some of the best. But I must say that what I'm doing now is what I've cared about my entire life. Dogs are my life. Um, the, the buzz, the feeling I get when I walk away from a client, knowing that things have changed, um, is just incredible. I'm Phil Hatterman, and this is Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Today, dog trainer and behaviorist Emily Pantoja from Max Canine, and I discuss how shelter at home has impacted our dogs, what to expect from a respectable trainer, and much more. If you're new to this podcast, in each episode we explore the world of dog care and companionship. We Save Each Other is the motto of Rosie Fund, which simply means the more we do for dogs, the more they do for us, and they already do a lot. If you love dogs, you'll love Dog Words. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions. Go to the podcast page at rosiefund.org to share your thoughts. We welcome suggestions for topics and guests. Please download, follow, rate, and most importantly, share Dog Words. Celebrate five years of Rosie Fund by supporting our campaign to sponsor 50 dogs. You can donate on our website or Facebook page. You can also contribute by making a purchase from the store on our website or buying a t-shirt at bonfire.com. Links are in the description. Your donations help fund the Rosie Life Starter Kits that make sure these senior and harder-to-adopt dogs have some of the items they'll need in their forever home. Please follow Rosie Fund on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe to the free Rosie Fund YouTube channel that offers great videos of Rosie, Peaches, and Shelter Dogs, including some exclusive content featuring dogs that get the Rosie Life Starter Kits. Remember to watch friend of Dog Words, Rue Yori, compete on NBC's American Ninja Warrior, coming up June 28th. There's still time to support Wallace the Pitbull Foundation's capital campaign to purchase property by pledging to Rue's Ninja for Dogs fundraiser. Details are at rueyori.com, which is linked in the description. Science writer Emily Anthes joined us back in February for a fascinating discussion of her book, The Great Indoors, The Surprising Science of How Buildings Shape Our Behavior, Health, and Happiness, which is now available in paperback. Dogs make an appearance in this book and much of her other writing, including her recent columns in The New York Times. A link to her episode is in the description. Next time on Dog Words, we help you find and maybe sell gifts for people who love their dogs with Corey Abramowitz from Bark Yours. The mission of Rosie Fund is to provide humans with the resources and education they need to give senior and harder-to-adopt dogs a better life. We thank you for joining our mission. Joining us from Gwynedd in North Wales is dog behaviorist and dog trainer, Emily Pantoja from Max Canine. Welcome to the show, Emily. Good afternoon, Phil. How are you? I am doing well. I saw an interview that you did where you talked about dogs coming out of COVID. We're so focused on the shelter at home and how we keep ourselves safe, but I really haven't heard other people talking about how this is impacting dogs, not just being in COVID, but how do we transition to after COVID. So there's a lot to unpack here. Initially, what are your thoughts on how people are perhaps treating their dogs differently, how this is impacting dog socialization and behavior being in the shelter at home? 
So this is a huge issue that we're seeing across the dog world at the moment, just in terms of training and behavior. A lot of my clients that I've spoken about who got a puppy during lockdown, um, they felt a little bit firstly targeted as being, you know, COVID puppy buyers, which is unfortunate because everybody has to be a first time dog owner. Mm -hmm. I've been a first time dog owner at some point. And what COVID-19 actually did in a positive way was it readjusted the daily working routine to allow these people that could never previously have a dog to now bring one home into their family. And that is a fantastic thing. I think it has, in a broader sense, opened people's eyes to the possibility of what your work relationship can be. Perhaps uh, the traditional five-day work week where you're there from nine to five or however you put in your 30, 40, 50 hours doesn't have to be structured the way it always was. If there's stuff you can do remotely, whether it's from home or from your vacation destination, you do that. And if people have gotten used to being around their dogs and their dogs certainly get used to being around them, we don't have to just flip a switch to, okay, now this dog is home alone for nine hours every day. That's it. And most people that I speak to, they've had dogs in the past, for example, that dog has always been used to, if they've worked full time, from day dot, unless they've booked a little bit of time off work, which mm -hmm. I recommend most people do, but then it's straight away nine hours alone. And that dog, you know, might have the owner popping back halfway through the working day, or they might have a dog walker come in to walk for them. But aside that, it's a real baptism of fire, you know, similar to bringing a puppy home and the first night leaving that puppy in a crate, for example, on their own to sleep for eight hours. It's a similar kind of thing. But mm -hmm. like you said, Phil, with this new kind of working routine, and um, I absolutely champion it. I think it's fantastic. What we aren't getting is we're not getting kind of these targeted times where the dog can have some alone time, hence where the issues are starting to really form. And I'm seeing it a lot. Dogs aren't just this tool to make us feel better, our companion. We have a responsibility to them as well. Speaking of which, my dog has announced she wants to come inside and join us. So one <laughs> second, let me take care of Peaches. No problem. Okay, little sidebar here. When no Peaches is ready to come in, she usually just walks up to the sliding doors on the deck and waits for a moment, expecting us to notice her, which we usually do, and we let her in. And if she has to howl a couple times, or in this case, more than a couple times, to announce her intentions, when she comes in, instead of just hopping in and then going to get a drink of water, laying down in the sun... She has her tail up and has this very purposeful march all around the house, checking things out like, like in the movies when the uh, police come to the door of the person who has a home invasion and the perpetrator is behind the door telling them, don't do anything stupid. So she suspects I've been held against my will because that's the only reason that I wouldn't immediately come to the door. So she has to come in and make sure there's not an intruder Everything is so she's safe. She's got a pistol out. She's ready. Mm -hmm. Pistol drawn. Oh, yeah. She's got one chambered. She's ready to go. So Brilliant. we've put her at ease. So now back to what I find is, is fascinating. This perspective that not only do we need to take care of our dogs by feeding them, giving them shelter, 
providing the right sleeping accommodations, regular vet visits. There's also this emotional, mental responsibility we have to make sure that they can de-stress. And for a lot of dogs, that's time alone because they're very focused on us when they're around us. Most dogs are. Yeah. So instead of these days using the word socializing, because a lot of people are focused on their dog's lack of socialization currently due to COVID, what I like to use instead is the word normalizing. So when we see things, for example, livestock, sheep, cows walking through a field, we actually want to normalize their presence. Similarly, what I want to do for my dog and what I want to teach people to do is normalize our absence. So socialization, for example, isn't really applicable in terms of a dog being left alone. And there's a connotation with socialization. You think of social interaction. So you want to make sure the dog has appropriate play behavior and gets along well with other dogs and isn't dog reactive or aggressive, but that's just a small part of their lives. And it's a very small part of socialization. Socialization is broad brush. I mean, I don't know what the rules are out in the States, but it might be as simple as your dog learning to travel on the train. That's socialization. We're Mm -hmm. socializing the dog with the travel on the train. It could be walking down the road and being okay with an HGV lorry driving past or a big wagon. Or it could be socializing them to the postman arriving at the house or friends and family arriving for dinner. It's a whole broad brush. And as you said before, we have a moral obligation and a responsibility to not only care for the physical health, but also the mental well-being of our pets, Um, let alone the the dangerous dogs acts, you know, where we have a moral obligation, but also a legal obligation to protect the public from any trauma. We also have an obligation to our pets, I think, to to bring them up, to be balanced and well-rounded. Yeah, you don't want to raise a child to be completely dependent on you. You exactly. raise a child to be able to make good decisions when you're not around, to be accountable, to understand boundaries and rules. You're not going to get the dog to the same level as uh, you know an 18-year-old or most 18-year-olds, but, but still you need to train them to have that confidence, that independence, to not be completely stressed out, to have that anxiety if you're not in their line of sight. Absolutely. And it really is a huge issue. But I don't know why this issue is so prevalent now as opposed to 10 years ago. And yes, COVID has an impact because, like I said, most people have been able to start working from home, which has meant their dogs don't have any absence. But then I would be asking myself the question, I need to create the absence. If I don't naturally get it by virtue of my job, then I need to start to create absences, be that putting my pup in another room to sleep whilst I come and record a podcast with Phil Hatterman mm-hmm. on Rosie's Fun, for example. And that's actually what my dog's doing right now because, albeit, yes, she is my partner in crime. She's my stooge dog and I use her for a lot of my cases with other dogs. She also has to have her alone time away from me. And that's just as crucial as my alone time away from her. She needs time to relax, time to unwind, and time away from a human companion. Really important. I'm going to brag a little bit because even though I sound like I'm uh, enabling Peaches by accommodating her schedule, I let her in. She did her sweep of the house, and now she is several rooms away not making a peep. She's done her job. She doesn't need to be in here with me, but... 
she's where she wants to be. So I'm proud that we've accomplished that with her. I encourage our listeners to check out an interview we did with author Mark Cushing last October on the release of his book, Pet Nation, The Love Affair That Changed America. And it's not too late to get it in hardcover, but it's also coming out in paperback in a couple months, so we'll try to get him back on for that. But he talks about how quickly the United States, and I think this is also true in Europe, we've evolved from a culture where people have pets to where pets are very literally part of the family. You don't just take care of your pet the way we did when I was a kid, which is if you were going on vacation and I grew up on a farm, you would just make sure that a friend or relative would come by once a day, every other day, just to make sure that your dog was okay and put some food out for it. Because on the farm, it had plenty of access to water with the waterers that were there for the livestock. And really, you didn't worry about the dog. Now you plan a vacation and you check to see what hotels and what restaurants and what entertainment venues will accommodate a pet and uh, what boarding there's available at your destination, not just boarding your pet while you're gone at home, taking it with you and boarding it for the afternoon or the day while you do other things. And it's, I think, a pendulum that has swung too far. It's, they're a part of our family, yes, but they're not an infant. They're still a dog. They don't need constant attention. You don't have to feel guilty if you leave your dog alone for a day or two with another caregiver. Phil, would you like a job? (laughs) (laughs) Because I really do have a job convincing some of my clients that despite what they may think, the dog that they've brought into their family is, yes, it's a family member, but it's not your child. And I really, you know, try and discourage people from referring to their dogs as their fur babies, as their children. And it is just that. I think I've seen an exponential rise over the past decade in the commercialization of pet ownership. So as you said, growing up on a farm, owning dogs as a part of farm life, whether they helped out with cattle and sheep or they helped out in terms of just a protective stance Mm -hmm. on the farm and you cared for them you gave them the required nutrition you gave them the required health care and you know an attention and socialization that they needed but that was the extent of it now in the uk we have things we have dog friendly hotel websites there's a dog friendly website whereby you can search local pubs cafes most of the places that you visit will have a sign in the door Um, shops, outlets, um, pubs, bars, coffee shops, we are dog friendly. And yes, I understand that. And it's great that people can start to integrate their dogs into everything we do. But as I said before, it's so important that they get the time away from us more than us being away from them. They need time away from us um, more than anything. It's a really prevalent issue. We've gone a kind of whole hog and just drawing back what I said on the commercialization of the canine world 10 years ago maybe more I never saw a dog walked on a harness a full body harness um, the traditional method of walking a dog you know a dog would wear a collar with an identity tag and you'd just clip a lead on mm-hmm. and off you go but all of a sudden now these kind of impressionable novice new dog owners are being and almost I feel conned into buy this you must buy this harness at 
40 pounds because it will make your life so much easier and you must buy this bit of equipment and you must put this jacket on your dog to keep them warm during your walk and you must put these shoes on your dog whilst climbing mountains to protect their paws and things like that. Now, I'm not negating the importance of good health care, but what I am questioning is the relevance of a dog wearing a jacket and it's actually quite damaging. I've done a bit of study into it. I don't know if we are becoming a little bit too over the top in terms of what we're, we're creating for dogs, but it's very much a commercial entity, I think, now. The analogy I would use uh, as far as the stress break is you think about a spouse who's a caregiver for their invalid partner and is just always giving of themselves to this person they love who now is in failing health and they neglect taking care of themselves. They don't recognize the importance of de-stressing and letting someone else come in for a while. And I look at that caregiver as the dog that we think of, we're the dog's caregiver. But when we're around the dog, I think they're so focused on us that they have, I would say, a caregiver energy that whatever hormones are being released in their body, whatever mental focus is required of a caregiver, that's what's going on with the dog when they're around us because they are so interested in what are you doing? Where are we going? Are you going to feed me? Are we going to play? And not to have a moment of not thinking about us doesn't give them a chance to recharge, to stop that hormone production and then have the recovery hormones released. They need that. And then as far as commercialization, I'll admit that my wife and I are guilty of that, that uh, we buy things that will look cute on our dog. She'll like that. And we do try to rationalize the coats we put on her because she's a very light fur pit that she has like almost no fur on her belly, a very thin coat. And in Kansas City, Missouri, it gets pretty cold. It gets down to... uh, 20 below Celsius. And for our American listeners, I'll let you do the math. We're so used to making everyone in Europe do the math when we talk in Fahrenheit, but you know how cold it gets in Kansas City if you're in the United States. And so you feel like, yeah, we need that extra layer. We need boots to keep ice out of her toes. But I do see people who I feel take that to another level that makes me uncomfortable. And I'm someone who buys coats for my dog. And but, but but tries to apply it practically, and she doesn't wear them all the time. And if it's above freezing, as long as there's not a howling cold wind, we don't put a coat on her because we think she would prefer to be in the elements, to be a dog, to be able to roll in the grass without a coat between her and the ground and just be a dog and paw at the dirt when she finds a scent that she likes without having a boot or a sock on. Uh- explain to you really quickly I do understand and I have this conversation with my clients you know I've got a client with an Italian greyhound and if you know the Italian greyhound you'd know that they are an incredibly fine-coated hot-blooded sighthound Mm -hmm. and they do need a little extra protection from the cold I completely understand that what I was questioning was whether your golden retriever for example Mm -hmm. needed to wear a barber jacket And there's the method behind my madness for those people that are, you know, just questioning, well, I want my dog to stay warm. What did we do 20 years ago? And what did those very breeds of dog do 20 years ago? Because the weather hasn't changed 
in fact, with global warming, we're actually getting warmer temperatures. What were the dogs doing before the jackets? But just to go back to a canine behavioral perspective, because we don't have to worry about opinions too much, but just from my mind and from my point of view, the problem with wearing a coat for a dog is another dog's perception of your dog. So, and I try and explain this to clients when I say, what must another dog think of your dog when it waddles over in a jacket like mine Mm -hmm. that not only changes the appearance of your dog, it changes the silhouette, it changes the shape of your dog, it changes their gait and the way they move depending on how it fastens, similar with a harness. When they fasten under the body, they change the movement of the dog. Not only that, you actually remove the key functional area of what a dog requires, and that is the scent if you've got your dog covered in polyester with, you know, a tail flap over its tail to cover him from all the elements, how does he smell to another dog? And what we're doing is we're moving away all the natural processes that a dog should be encouraged to do. And actually, we could encourage some slightly odd behaviors between our animals. And I've seen it before myself when dogs have been aversive to another animal wearing a coat because they just don't know what it is, Phil. So (laughs) that is my kind of behavioral slant on it. I'm not saying dogs can't wear jackets. I'm just saying just think in terms of interaction, what the effect might be for your particular dog. It's a choice, and it should be a rational one, not an emotional one. It shouldn't be, I want my dog to look cute. It should be, is there a practical need that is being addressed? As I said before, if you've got a greyhound, just as, a, as a, an example, Italian greyhound, whippet type, I understand that those dogs might require an extra layer, especially, you know, during the colder months. But I would still be making big considerations before I decide to dress my dog up in clothes, put it that way. Well, you make a great point, which I've never considered, the harness changing the gate, the covering changing the way scent is exchanged. I think that's a perfect setup for then my next question, which is masking that has been part of shelter at home. That certainly changes our appearance and the way dogs can read us. Have you seen that impacting both dogs that are pre-COVID dogs that we're used to reading faces and then the COVID puppies who don't know a world before masks? You'll have heard it countless times in the past as dog owners yourselves, you know. Have you ever heard people say, oh, my dog doesn't like people in high visibility jackets? Or my dog doesn't like men wearing baseball caps? Or if you're wearing a big coat, she might bark at you. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with clients like that in the past. So the mask concept for me, dealing with the behavior, it's no change for me. But what I am making my clients aware of, and um, for example, I spoke with a breeder the other day And she hadn't actually considered the impact that COVID could have on a litter of puppies. And after us having the conversation about face masks, one of the measures that she's decided to introduce as a responsible breeder is that she's going to spend some time wearing face masks around the puppy. Because in the crucial formative stages of the brain development, the cognitive development of a puppy, between the ages of three and 16 weeks, a really, really crucial stage. And obviously the breeder has responsibility for for perhaps five of those weeks. And when we create neural pathways, so we're exposing the dogs to sight, sounds, smells, the washing machine, other people, noises, 
She's also now going to introduce the concept of face masks to those dogs so that when they do go off to their new homes, it's not a completely new thing. So I think that's a really responsible thing for a breeder to do, to consider the future of our world, if you like. The fact that COVID will be with us to stay, I imagine. And what we have to do is learn to operate within it and manage it as opposed to work against it. So there are definitely some issues and you know where possible when greeting dogs I do within reason try to remove my mask because dogs read our faces they Mm -hmm. read our expressions if you've ever smiled at your dog you'll watch their change in body language as opposed to you know if you have a frowny sad face Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah it's definitely one to consider and that's one for breeders out there and perhaps those that work in rescue centers they might not be as used to the mask environment so, you know, when we were walking down a rescue center aisle and we're looking at dogs whilst wearing masks, that dog that normally might come off as quite friendly might look a bit withdrawn and concerned because they can't see half of your face. Mm-hmm. So there is a big implication. While we're talking about the adoption experience, whether it's in a shelter with a rescue group or with a breeder, it's concerning how much of an impulse by it can be when someone adopts a dog. And I'm not just talking about the decision to adopt a dog, but specifically which dog is a fit for your family, for your lifestyle. Again, there are breed tendencies like we talked about with a bloodhound that if you can't take a leisurely walk that allows the dog to do its sniffing, maybe that's not the right dog for you. I think there's People who want a dog, but then don't know how to find the right dog or even realize there is a right dog. It's not just a dog is a dog is a dog. I think this draws back to one of the things I spoke to a journalist about recently. And that's mainly during the COVID-19 pandemic, I think falls down to a lot of breeder responsibility. So don't forget, there are a lot of first-time puppy and dog owners during the COVID-19 pandemic, and that's great to see because, as I said, working patterns have changed. What I've found, though, is that a lot of breeders have exploited the pandemic as such, and I wouldn't like to call them breeders because it tars people with quite a negative brush. Mm -hmm. But people that are breeding dogs for profit to make a lot of money and just farming them out to families who are demanding them. So I'm seeing a lot of kind of fashionable working type breeds, working Cocker Spaniels, working lines of Border Collies, even working lines or what you will know as American type Labradors. And these are working dogs. They're what we suggest, you know, and there's a reason that we use Cocker Spaniel and Springer Spaniels and Labrador Retrievers in the military and in Border Force because they were bred to do a job. Now, what they weren't bred to do necessarily in a novice home was to exist in a very hectic family of five young children with two adults who work full-time and, you know, have a hell of a lot of responsibility just to keep those five human beings alive. And these are the people I'm finding are struggling. And these are also the people who thought with the best intentions, let's bring a young spaniel puppy home. But now we are really, really struggling to give this dog what it needs. And they are kind of the perception to the experienced dog owner is that these people are irresponsible. But actually, my question to you would be, is it these guys or is it the breeder? Because as a breeder, I would be doing my research. I'm not a breeder and Mm -hmm. I never will be. But if I was breeding a litter of 
working or American type Labrador puppies, the first thing I'd be doing is home checks and whether that's physical now that we can, or whether that was remotely via what we're doing on, on zoom here, or I'd be asking questions about working lifestyles. I'd be asking what they do in their spare time, the age of their children, because like it or not, it's really difficult to bring up an 18 month old baby, a two year old and a four year old coach them through life and school whilst trying to develop a very high energy working type of dog. Mm -hmm. There are dogs out there, you know, our rescue centers are full of older dogs that perhaps would really fit the bill. You know, I always say to people, why did you go for a Rhodesian Ridgeback when you don't particularly like walking, but you had the perfect opportunity to rescue an eight month old greyhound who perhaps would be more content with a 20 minute walk around the block and to laze on the sofa with you all evening. Mm -hmm. And it's just about making informed decisions because there isn't really an excuse because all the information is there and it's free. You only have to go on the internet, onto social media, to speak to rescue centers, vets, people like myself, trainers and behaviorists and say, do you think this is the right dog for me? And those people would welcome you with open arms. Well, especially a rescue group or a shelter, the last thing they want is to see you again in two months bringing that dog back. They want that dog to go to its forever home. So if you are upfront with them, they will be upfront with you and try to get that dog in the best situation. Worst case scenario for a shelter or a rescue group isn't the person who comes back in two months to return the dog because this is not a fit. The worst case scenario is the person who doesn't come back with that dog and just neglects it. That's even worse. This is not a fit but I'm just going to feed this dog until it gets old and dies, which is is heartbreaking. I'd rather you bring it back, but let's get it right in the first place. Let's find a fit before you leave the shelter, before you leave the breeder. And like you said, there's no excuse for not doing your research. It's easier now in the information age than it's ever been. And really, you know, if I wasn't being given a Spanish Inquisition either by a rescue center or a breeder, I'd walk away. And, you know, asking me every question under the sun about my background, what I like to do in my spare time, my setup, my working lifestyle, then for sure they don't care about what what the puppies are doing. And is that very breeder the one that has, has negated to perform certain health tests and temperament testing before breeding two dogs? They're the people that have actually bother to socialize those puppies during those crucial formative weeks we spoke about before or are these the people that are backyard breeding for money and they're just kind of throwing the dogs in sheds until they can get rid of them at seven weeks and um, make a nice profit so one of my like my key bits of advice for listeners and not so much the rescue fraternity but certainly those that are looking to go to a breeder would be that you really need to feel like you've been quizzed to death don't worry if they offend you and they will offend you if they care. I teach yoga for golfers, and I encourage everyone I work with to get golf instruction because I work on the biomechanics of the body that will allow you to make an efficient, repeatable swing and maximize your potential, but you still need to have the right fundamentals as far as stance, grip, address, all of that. And I tell them, you can, go to, yeah, you can go to an instructor I recommend, but if you go to someone else and they say, oh yeah, I can get your swing and shape in, in a couple sessions, or I can lower your score, absolutely, 
don't walk, run away from that instructor. You want an instructor who's going to tell you, just like I was saying earlier about correcting dog behavior takes time, takes commitment. Building a golf swing takes time and commitment. And if your instructor isn't saying, if you're willing to put in the time and the commitment, I will make you a better golfer. Your score will come down if you learn course management, but I will give you the potential for that. But I'm not making any promises that this is going to be easy. And there definitely isn't a magic move that's going to fix your swing. You want that honest instructor because that's the only way you're going to improve. And you want that uh, dog breeder, that rescue group, that shelter that is going to have a conversation with you. That's the way you know that they care. It's exactly the same with dog trainers, Phil, because I always have to manage clients' expectations. I can give you the tools, just like you could give the tools to help improve a golf swing, or you could give somebody the knowledge of course management. And I can give people what to do and show them, but then it's down to them to take it on and progress and put the work in after I've left them, for example, to them really to get things going, to really sharpen their swing, if you like. And a golf instructor or a dog trainer or a yoga instructor doesn't want the person who's going to be a client for a session or two and then leave. Because even though they've paid you, they're bad word of mouth. They're going to tell people, "Eh, it didn't work, that person's no good, even though it's the fault of the client that didn't do the work. You're the one whose reputation is on the line. And that's why I'm really quite choice with who I work with now. Because if I get any inkling that somebody just wants me to train their dog, Mm -hmm. I I run to the hills because absolutely I can train their dog. But if they can't carry on, I have no confidence that that's going to be a success story. And that way then Max Canine's success stories reduce. Mm -hmm. So for me Someone's going to ask them, why is your dog a hot mess? I don't know. I took him to Max Canine. It's like, well, I'm definitely not taking my dog there. Exactly. So now it's kind of, I'm at a stage really in my career and and my calendar where I can be choice. Believe me, I want to help every person with every dog. But actually, if I have no confidence that person wants to make a change, that they just want to pay me to do it, I run to the hills. And that's stealing time from someone who does want to make the commitment. Exactly. Exactly. I'd like to talk a little bit about your background, that you are a dog trainer, behaviorist. How did you come to that in in life? Have you always been a dog person? Did you always want to be someone who worked with, with animals? I have always been a dog person. And what you might find hard to believe as, I suppose, as a listener, as an individual, is that I didn't grow up with dogs. And dogs were never part of our upbringing or our family life. And the reason for that was that my parents both worked incredibly long hours and we were a very busy family. And we simply made the judgment that we didn't have time, albeit we all loved animals. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the time to bring a dog up the way they should be brought up. So I spent my childhood dog walking for other people and it really went from there. My background isn't totally with dogs. I joined the British Army at 20 years old. I went on to serve for 10 years as a commissioned officer. I commissioned from the Royal Military Academy of Sandhurst, and then I went on to serve in the British Army. I set up what was known as M's Dog Services back in 2012, 
And I worked that job on the side of the British Army and through the British Army, I, I gained a lot of experience working with people, which is the main element of what I do now. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's an understanding of dogs and I have a lot of experience and a lot of credibility and technical competence working with dogs, but the human element is so important because not every dog handler is the same. So the kind of the experiences I, I drew from working in the army for a number of years really led me to where I am today. You know, it didn't define me, but it definitely helped to form me. I started studying in my spare time with the Cambridge Institute of Dog Behaviour and Training, who are a fantastically recognised uh, organisation in the UK that cover all aspects of dog behaviour. And then I went on to become registered with the Canine and Feline Behaviour Association, although we don't have a governing body as such in the behavioural world. But these guys really are the pinnacle authority for behaviour consultation. And the process to become recognised as a member is rigorous. And it's probably one of the hardest inquisitions, considering my background, that I've ever been through in my life. And it was one that I cared about the most. Coming from someone who's served in the military, to make that statement (laughs) is no... Bold. Yeah, that's very bold. <laughs> yeah, and it was. And don't get me wrong, my service in the British Army, some of the best years in my life, some of the hardest, but some of the best. But I must say that what I'm doing now is what I've cared about my entire life. Dogs are my life. Um, the, the buzz, the feeling I get when I walk away from a client knowing that things have changed um, is just incredible. I was working with a family today who'd rescued a shepherd cross who had issues with aggression due to a terrible background and upbringing that I won't mention now. And he had terrible issues with men and awful problems with other dogs. And the changes that we saw today and the confidence that we instilled in the owners just made me really emotional during the session. And I actually teared up and um, they offered me a tissue and I said, you know, that that's only ever happened once before. But it, then it really hit me when I was driving home that how much I love doing what I do, not only with dogs, but to change the human perception of what their dogs perhaps thinking. And, you know, everybody that calls me are in the right place and they're doing the right thing because they've reached out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people just give up why we have so many dogs in rescue because people just give up. And I think if we regulated my industry more and there were people out there that could help, you know, and people can see me through pet insurance, which is what the CFBA is great for, because, again, it's an unregulated world. So people are worried about the cost of seeing a behaviorist, for example, and that might put them off because the easier option is just to say, I relinquish my dog to rescue. But these people made the effort. They called me. We worked together and we made a difference between us. They say if you do what you love doing, you'll never work a day in your life. And I definitely don't ever work. I agree with that. And I think part of the reason that people will give up on a dog is that there's this perception that a German Shepherd has these characteristics. A Border Collie has these characteristics. An Italian Greyhound has these characteristics. And so if your dog is behaving a certain way, people will accept that that's just how that breed is and I can't deal with that, so I need to give it up instead of recognizing this is a learned behavior that is not part of the breed. This aggression or reactivity, it can be addressed 
certainly there are things that are breed specific. You know, my bloodhound is always sniffing on walks. I can't get him to keep his head up. It's like, well, you adopted a pound. That's what they do. But it being aggressive towards other dogs, we can work on that. And it is work. It's not a trainer saying, well, you know, you're holding the leash wrong. There you go. Well, no, there's some behaviors that need to be addressed and you need to be consistent about how you respond to those. And that's going to take some time and commitment. But if you love your dog, we can figure this out and come up with a solution. Absolutely. Again, would you like a job? Are you sure you don't want a job? (laughs) I would love to visit Wales. I know Peaches would have to be quarantined and my wife would have to quit her job, but we'll figure it out. We'll we'll talk off, off air and figure out how we can make this happen. And I think another great point you made was that in the military, you learned how to deal with people and someone who says, I'm not a people person, so I'm going to work with dogs or animals. There are some things you can do, but being a trainer or a behaviorist is not one of them because you have to work with that pet's humans. People. And the people have to often hear Things that are tough to hear, not about the dog, but about themselves. That there are things you are doing that if you want to make a change in this dog, you're going to have to make a change in yourself. I couldn't agree more. A hell of a lot of what I do is working with people. It's the human element. And I've been to hundreds of clients now and I've seen everything. And don't forget, I'm working with people in their homes some of the time Mm -hmm. and not always coming to our headquarters. And you don't realize the extent to which a dog can cause stress on a family. And we're talking marital breakdowns, people leaving. People have become so anxious about their dog's behavior that then they, they don't leave the house anymore. And what's so important about what I do is tailoring what I teach and tailoring my behavior modification plans to suit the person. Because if I hit a one-size-fits-all method, it may work for you, Phil, but it might not work for your next-door neighbor mm-hmm. with their dog because their style changes. Not everybody is a confident leader figure and you can't teach leadership as they tell us at the Royal Military Academy. You can't teach leadership. You can teach management and people can manage a dog's behavior because a lot of people do manage behaviors for their entire lives, but you can't teach somebody to be a leader. And what dogs need is confident leadership. Now, I can help people and I can coach them into being better leaders, but if they don't have it in the first place, sometimes it's difficult. And they're the people that I see having problems with dogs because when a dog sees a gap, he's going to jump into it. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be a dominating, overly assertive character with dogs because in a lot of cases, it really isn't required. And if people just look into their past, who are the best leaders that you have followed, whether it was a teacher, a coach, a manager, a business owner, was it the person who was obnoxiously domineering and unyielding, or it was the person who had emotional intelligence who could set the right tone for, this is our environment, and I'm going to help you thrive in this environment. I'm going to support you, but I'm also going to protect you. That's not a domineering mean-spirited, narcissistic leadership. And that's not leadership at all, to be narcissistic and and domineering. And contrary to some common belief, a lot of dogs don't necessarily need that autocratic style of leadership, that dominant character, that type of leadership that's almost um, obtained through fear. 
And if you compare the human element, and I know dogs aren't humans, but as you said just then, we want to follow the quietly confident person who says, follow me, mm-hmm. I've got your back. And looking back to the time I served in the army, they were the people that I wanted to follow. Mm-hmm. But the people that shouted and tried to gain respect through verbalizing their demands were the people I least wanted to follow. And I say this to clients every day, the less verbal and vocal you can be with dogs and the more you can encourage them to do what you want through body language, through leadership. And I know that sounds like an odd thing to say, but you don't have to tell your dog to sit to get them to sit is what I'm saying. You don't have to scream at your dog to get them to recall to you. And you certainly don't have to get them to walk on the lead by pulling them. Um, There are elements and and, and ways of achieving a lot of things. But what my point I'm trying to make is you don't have to be an overly vocal character to get a leadership function with you and your dog. Well, another self-serving plug that I'm going to make is our interview with Dr. Ellen Furlong, who's a dog behavior researcher. We've had her on a couple times, but the first time we had her on from Illinois Wesleyan University was back in December. And one of the things she talked about is two misconceptions that people have about dogs is, one, just like you said, that they need an alpha who's this dominant leader and that there's this pack structure and the dog has to know who's number one, who's number two, who's number three, who's number four. They just need someone who is calmly in charge. There doesn't need to be this very structured hierarchy. And the other misconception is that the reason people think that is because dogs used to be wolves. And so it needs to function like a wolf pack. Well, the misconception is wolf packs aren't like that either. (laughs) Yes, wolf packs aren't like that either. But also evolution has happened since our cockapoo was a wolf. Mm -hmm. Evolution has happened since our dogs were wolves and they were wandering around in in the mountains together. Uh, You know, similarly to what your author mentioned in her writing, Dogs aren't overly vocal with each other. Just like you said before, aggression within dogs is not innate. So with a German Shepherd, they may have a tendency to want to herd and guard. Or you might have a bloodhound, like you said, that's interested in scenting everything. But aggression, for example, is not innate. But also vocalization is not innate. And that's what films have led us to believe when we see wolves in the wild, all we see is them howling and communicating through voice. Mm -hmm. But actually, if you watch a wolf in the wild and if you watch a wolf pack, there's very little vocalization. Similarly, if you watch a balanced group of dogs, and I'm not saying a brand new pack of unsocialized dogs post COVID, Mm -hmm. I'm saying a balanced pack of socialized dogs, there's no vocal. There's a lot of sniffing. There's a lot of body language. There might be a little bit of assertive behavior, but there's no vocalization. So I ask my clients the same question. Could we obtain the leadership of our dog through a similar function, i.e. non-vocal? Because all I'm saying to my dog when I'm neurotic and I'm high-pitched and I'm squealing about what I want them to do, all I'm saying is I'm completely out of control. Mm -hmm. And I say every day, I need you to be in control without being controlling, because they're two very different things. You've given our listeners, I think, a lot to think about. And certainly, I think this is going to help them become better, not just dog 
owners, but dog lovers, because it's the interaction with all dogs, not just your own, that is part of our current culture that, again, you see dogs everywhere, just knowing how to behave around a dog, just being calm, not freaking out, not thinking that your vocalization is going to convince them to behave a certain way. Doesn't work with people, doesn't work with dogs. Emily, I would love to have you on again to talk more about dog behavior and any advice you have for our listeners. This has been very enlightening and very fun. Emily Pantoja, dog trainer and behaviorist with Max Canine. MaxCanine.co.uk will be linked in the description for this episode, and you can contact her if you have more questions. And certainly, if you are anywhere near Gwynedd, North Wales, there is no one better to talk to about dog behavior than Emily. Thank you so much for joining us today. My absolute pleasure. And just further to what you said, I offer advice. If ever anybody needs it, or if they just need to speak to somebody about a problem they've got with their dog or a problem they've got with being a dog's leader, just get in touch. Happy to chat. Thank you again. Thank you. I'm Phil Hatterman, and you've been listening to Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Thank you to dog trainer and behaviorist Emily Pantoja of Max Canine for joining us today. Check out her website, maxcanine.co.uk, and follow her on Facebook and Instagram. All are linked in the description. There are also links to the Dog Words episodes we referenced in today's interview. If you find an old episode you like, be sure to share it with your friends. Next time on Dog Words, we help you find and maybe sell gifts for people who love their dogs with Corey Abramowitz from Bark Yours. Thank you to Alternative String Duo The Wires featuring cellist Sasha Groshong and violinist Laurel Morgan Parks for playing the wonderful music you've heard on today's and previous episodes of Dog Words. Supporting The Wires supports our mission. Learn more about The Wires at thewires.info and download their music on iTunes. Check out fiddlelife.com and learn to play fiddle and cello fiddle online from Laurel and Sasha, even if you've never played before. Celebrate five years of Rosie Fund by supporting our campaign to sponsor 50 dogs. Donate on our website, Facebook page, or making a purchase at bonfire.com. Links are in the description. Your donations help fund the Rosie Life Starter Kits for senior and harder-to-adopt dogs. As always, please download, follow, rate, and share Dog Words. This helps us with sponsorships, then Rosie Fund can help more dogs. Support Rosie Fund by following us on social media, and please subscribe to the free Rosie Fund YouTube channel. Send us your comments, questions, and suggestions at rosiefund.org, and let us know if you would like to be a sponsor of Dog Words or a guest. Thank you for listening, and remember, we save each other.